Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio, your weekly dose of science, skepticism, and often some uh, feminism and anti-capitalism mixed in. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasedarata.com. As you may know, I'm extremely interested in archaeology, and I actually have to often force myself to talk about other things so as not to make this show just an archaeology show. I would like it to be just an archaeology show some days, but I think that there is a wild and varied um, repertoire of science-based articles that definitely need to be talked about. And I like to be able to kind of find some that are a little quirky and different and also try and find ones that are hopeful. And so I do try and not concentrate exclusively on archaeology, which means I often end up with a large uh, window full of tabs for papers that have uh, interest in archaeological finds. So this week we are going to dive into that window of uh, <laughs> internet tabs, and we are going to spend the evening talking about archaeology. And so I am going to start the evening tonight with a uh, really neat story of Arctic hunter-gatherers who were able to create intricate ironwork and other uh, metal work. And so this one's been saved in my folder for a while now because it featured a picture of a really beautiful bronze uh, buckle that I just kept thinking, I really need to talk about this um, because it's so cool to think about, um, you know, fairly archaic hunter-gatherers in the Arctic being able to create these beautiful items that we tend to normally associate with more sedentary um, agricultural urban spaces. So over 2,000 years ago, nomads in northern Fennoscandinavia, which is uh, northeastern Sweden in the present day, had ancient furnaces and fire pits, which they used for metalworking. Archaeologist Karina Bennerhag of Lulea University of Technology in Sweden and colleagues note that the nomadic nature of this group did not hinder their ability to have large-scale operations which produced iron and crafted metal objects including decorative items such as that brooch. They also suggest that these people were exchanging resources and knowledge related to metallurgy as they moved around the Arctic Circle between 250 BCE. These hunter-gatherers at two sites in Sweden probably manufactured more iron and steel and were more socially organized and sedentary than we previously thought, said Lulea archaeologist and co-author Christina Soderholm. It suggests that these groups would settle down for large periods of time near the resources needed to create this sort of technology, ores for prospecting, wood for charcoal, and clay and stone for building the furnaces and fire pits required for smelting and refining metals. 
And again, it was once thought that metallurgy was a hallmark of large agrarian societies because it was posited that you needed to have enough people to do all of the different forms of gathering and for people to have enough time to be dedicated to doing these kinds of jobs that aren't subsistence farming or subsistence hunter gathering. And, you know, it's as we've moved through the latter half of the 21st, 20th century and the first half of the 21st century, our understanding of nomadic people and of hunter gatherers has really evolved. And so we are continually finding new ways in which nomadic people were doing things that we had not thought they would be doing in prior um, ideas about ancient history, which I think is very cool because I think that um, we tend to have this very kind of black and white view of hunter-gatherers versus agrarian societies. And um, I didn't talk about it tonight, but there was actually a story that I read about where uh, there was a um, a paper done where they looked at the skeletons of humans from very early agrarian societies. And I think I've mentioned this before, but it really looks like the move from hunter-gatherer to agrarian societies wasn't so great initially um, on human health. And so some of these people were actually less well-nourished than their hunter-gatherer, uh, than those who retained hunter-gatherer uh, lifestyles. And so it is really interesting. Um, and I mean, I think I can understand why that is. I mean, even today, we would say that a um, a diet that's more rich in, you know, protein and vegetables versus starches is still considered to be a better diet. And so if your main part of your diet is in starches, that's not necessarily great for your long-term uh, health. So yeah, nomads are pretty excellent. And it's not like they did that on purpose, though. Let's let's not be uh let's let's be careful not to ascribe agency. Most nomadic people were nomadic because that was their way of life. And, you know, there were probably people who saw um, you know, agrarian societies and were like, yeah, no, thank you. Um, but I don't have the expertise to say how much of that was actual choice and how much of it was actually just, well, this is what our culture does and we're not interested in moving into this agrarian sedentary way. But anyways, we're getting a little bit off topic as I want to do. And so researchers had originally thought that metallurgy didn't reach and begin to be developed in the Arctic until between 700 AD and 1600 AD. So not until after um, the beginning of the Common Era. That should be CE, not AD. Sorry. I do try and change it every time, but occasionally I, I forget. Um, so CE is the common era, BCE before the common era. It's just a little more inclusive language. Um, since of course, uh, <laughs> Anno Domnii <laughs> means, uh, I don't know if it directly means, but people tend to say in the year of our Lord, which is not exactly inclusive. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, 
And especially since I'll make the argument that even if it was uh, based, even if we did want to base it on that, it's the wrong year. (laughs) And so anyways, we uh, have moved to using CE and BCE, which I am absolutely in favor of. Though anodomnia is a great word to say, nonetheless. (laughs) So archaeologist Marcos Martinon Torres, I always feel bad for mispronouncing names. I do hope you forgive me. (laughs) Of the University of Cambridge, who was not involved in the research, notes that this study is particularly insightful because the metal is iron, typically considered a more challenging metallurgy than copper or gold. The makers are hunter-gatherers, historically assumed to use only basic technologies, and the location is in a region largely ignored in histories of technology. Unsurprisingly, uh, not a lot of people pay attention to the Arctic even today, uh, despite the fact that people have lived there for millennia and have made technological (laughs) innovations in order to do that. yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, let's finish the story and then I'll I'll get off on the tangent that I'm thinking of. And so Benerhag and her team started excavations at a site called Sangus. Here they uncovered a rectangular iron smelting furnace consisting of a frame made from stone slabs, and one side was open so that you could actually get into the furnace. A clay shaft was built within and partially upon the frame. Holes in the frame were added to serve as inlets for air to be blown onto charcoal that would have been the heat source inside, and that probably would have been done using bellows placed on flat stones. Both byproducts of heating iron ore at high temperatures, as well as the remnants of a ceramic wall lining, were found outside the furnace. Radiocarbon dating indicated an age of 200 to 50 BCE. An area nearby was found to have pottery fragments and other materials dating to between 500 and BCE and 900 CE. So there was definitely a long history of occupation in the area. They found copious fish bones and at least three fire pits where iron from the furnaces would have been refined. So first you smelt the iron and then you refine it. And so they also found several items made of iron and steel. They also found the bronze buckle that I was uh, mentioning and metallic waste that had copper droplets on it suggesting that different metals were being smelted here. So not only were they smelting iron, but they were smelting bronze, copper, steel. So there was a lot going on here. The molding technique and decorative style for the bronze buckle resemble metal items found in hunter-gatherer sites in northwestern Russia, dating to as old as 2,300 years ago. So again, they think that there was probably a lot of cultural exchange between people in the Arctic Circle because they were hunter-gatherers. And traditionally, hunter-gatherers have pretty large ranges because you need to be able to move around and follow the um, herds that you are relying on for sustenance and also to be able to follow the seasonal um, plants and vegetables that are available to you. And so they do tend to have much larger 
territories than sedentary people. Knives and other objects that featured two or more layers and showed expert welding had been found, and some were exposed to either of two types of heating in order to strengthen them. So there's clearly a lot of technological know-how going on here that the welding is really expert, the um, ability to know how to heat something in order to strengthen it. All of that takes a lot of practice, a lot of trial and error, and potentially a lot of knowledge sharing between people. And so at a second site, Vivungi, this featured the remains of two iron smelting furnaces that would have gone into production around 100 BCE. And it also features the remains of iron ore, the, pro- the byproducts of iron smelting and shards of ceramic wall lining. So that clay turns into ceramic. Here, there was no evidence, though, of further refining via fire pits. So that was interesting. Radiocarbon dating of animal bones near the furnaces here indicate that hunter-gatherers would have occupied this site at different times between 5,300 BCE and 1600 AD. Now, it turns out that this isn't terribly surprising, as iron production has been found in southern Scandinavia for more than 2,000 years. And so it isn't terribly shocking that it moved into northern Scandinavia. It's just not something that people were looking for or thinking about. The first iron smelting is thought to have been produced in Mesopotamia with the Hittites between 1500 and 1177 BCE. So that is very interesting. And of course, metalworking is one of those great innovations that really changed the face of humanity. All right. So um, one of the things that I wanted to just touch on before we move on is the idea of archaeology in a sort of more overviewish way. So even though um, several of these stories are about people in Europe, which is a little bit easier to um, discuss without it being problematic. I've been listening to a podcast recently uh, called Our Fake History. And one of the things that um, the uh, host was talking about was the idea of how hard it is to tell stories about indigenous peoples without making the story end up being about uh, the Europeans and Westerners who have either quote-unquote discovered their uh, cultural patrimony or that have um, written texts that are accessible to us about these people and that you end up having this issue with centering white men generally in stories that you're trying to tell about indigenous people and it just made me really think about that. And it's really true. Um, you know, he's trying to talk about Pocahontas. And when you want to talk about Pocahontas, unfortunately, you have to talk about John Smith. Because John Smith is where we get our knowledge about Pocahontas from in large part. And so when she reaches England, there's some other sources. But, um, you know, you have to spend a lot of time talking about him. 
and, you know, his uh, dubious relationship with the truth. Um, obviously, we know that Pocahontas was a real person. She did go to England. Um, she met many people in England, and that was documented. Um, but whether or not she was some sort of lovesick puppy uh, is another story altogether. Um, but anyways, uh, one of the things I just wanted to talk about was to acknowledge that idea. So for instance, if you want to talk about Polynesians and their amazing navigation skills, what you end up talking about is how Europeans came to, came to, uh, the, um, South Pacific and looked around at Polynesians and, uh, basically were like, we have no idea how these people ended up on these places and made up all sorts of ideas instead of just acknowledging the fact that they were expert mariners. Um, seriously, expert man mariners. Like, if you really compared apples to apples of, like, European navigators versus Polynesian navigators, I would say the Polynesian navigators would have won hands down. Absolutely. Um, but, of course, uh, history is written mostly by white men. Uh, and still continues to be written mostly by white men, unfortunately. Uh, archaeology and history are definitely places where uh, the ability of people to tell their own stories, indigenous people to be able to tell their own stories, is still extremely problematic. Um, but So yeah, I just wanted to talk about that a little bit since we are talking about archaeology and I did want to acknowledge it and, you know, center the fact that some of the some of these stories are always going to have that problematic undertone but i think that the best archaeologists try really hard to work with local people to acknowledge local knowledge um you know if they say well the people in you know that we would use this thing for this to say well People now say this is used for this instead of being like, well, you know, people say it's for that, but we think it's for X, Y, or Z other thing because why would we trust local knowledge? And so, um, yeah. Okay, let's move on. <laughs> Earlier in the year, uh, a remarkable musical instrument went on display at a major exhibition about Neolithic Britain and Stonehenge. A stone drum carved from chalk and discovered in 2015 near a village in Yorkshire in the north of England was found in the north of England. The British Museum says it's one of the most significant ancient objects ever found in the British Isles. This is a truly remarkable discovery and is the most important piece of prehistoric art to be found in Britain in the last 100 years, said Neil Wilkin, curator of the exhibition, The World of Stonehenge. The drum is, quote, one of the most elaborately decorated objects of this period found anywhere in Britain and Ireland. And so the drum is actually meant to be a sculpture or a uh, religious token talisman, um, rather than as a functional instrument. Um, and it is now one of four known examples. So we'll talk about the other three in a minute. And so it was actually found uh, with, accompanied by a chalk ball and a polished bone pin. And all three objects were placed above the head of the oldest of three children 
in a communal burial, and the children were actually buried together so close that they could touch or hold hands, um, which is extremely poignant. And, um, you know, there's probably a really tragic tale there. And so, um, you know, to have them be buried with a ball and a drum and the um, pin that would probably be representative of an adult's clothing, um, you know, an adult um, cloak or something like that would be pinned together with these bone pins. Um, it's It clearly has a sort of deep significance for these people. And um, it's really, it's a really beautiful object. And again, it's this idea of, you know, even in the Neolithic, humans were humans and they still mourned their dead. The The death of children was still a great tragedy. And so you can absolutely see the humanity in all of this. So the site is found uh, near the modern village of Burton Agnes and is 240 miles from Stonehenge, which is uh, actually in the southwest of England. Um, and so the the ball and pins are actually similar to ones found found by the drummer, also found at Stonehenge. So they also find examples of these balls and pins near Stonehenge, which suggests that there was a similarity of culture, even though 240 miles away is a fairly large distance in the Neolithic. Um, you know, I always am harping on the idea that humans moved a lot more than we think they did, but um, that's still a fairly good amount of, uh, a fairly good stretch. The museum suggests that this actually may indicate that groups across both Britain and Ireland shared artistic styles and probably beliefs over remarkable distances. Because of this, it can be help, it can help to interpret other items from the collection. Analysis of its carvings will help to decipher the symbolism and beliefs of the era in which Stonehenge was constructed, said Wilkin. Now, three similar drums were found back in 1889 at the burial site of a single child around 15 miles away from where the newest drum was found. These are known as the Folkton drums, and they're described as, quote, some of the most famous and enigmatic ancient objects ever unearthed in Britain. Now, for the latest uh, items, radiocarbon dating suggests that they were carved between 3005 and 2890 BCE, at the same time as the first round of construction at Stonehenge, which means that the researchers are probably correct and that these were uh, culturally um, parallel people to those who were actually down in on the Salisbury Plain creating the first version of Stonehenge because of course there's several um, there's several layers of construction at Stonehenge so it's not built all in one go uh, first the smaller henge is built and then the larger henge and then of course there's a whole bunch of other uh, ceremonial areas near there there's Woodhenge. Um, which is fairly close to Stonehenge. And um, I mean, we could do a whole episode on Stonehenge, but I think that most people are pretty savvy to uh, the interest, the interesting points of it. And I think that there's so much else to talk about as well. 
So we're actually going to move uh, across the globe to India for a minute. And so a new thesis suggests that the ancient Indus society had a complex pattern of urbanity, which was rare elsewhere at this time. The aim was to analyze the urban infrastructure of the Indus civilization by comparing archaeological data from its largest urban formations. The effect of urbanization on the regional environment have also been treated in this thesis, said Sidra Gulzar, a doctoral student in archaeology who defended the thesis at the University of Gothenburg. The study looks at urbanization processes in relation to the size of the population, the settlement area, and the geographical location of the urban centers. He also compared the Indus region to the Mesopotamian region from a variety of levels. The study used archaeological materials and focused on a limited number of artifacts from Mohenjo-Daro, Harappa, and Ganwarawala. I'm sorry, that's a new one to me. I've heard Mohenjo-Daro and Harappa, but Ganwarawala um, is a new one. G-A-N-W-E-R-I-W-A-L-A. Um, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing it, and again, I apologize. And so these items were analyzed and compared using the SEM-EDX method, um, which is a scanning electron uh, microscopy with energy dispersive X-ray analysis, which is a fancy new type of um, microscopy, which is, of course, one of the cool things about archaeology now is that we're developing a lot of next generation uh, visualizing tools. And so even things from the past are being reexamined using this new technology, and we're finding out new things about um, items we already also have. And so the results showed that the artifacts were produced locally. Gulzar focused largely on Ganwarawala, which is the least well-studied of the sites. And in fact, I note I had never heard of it before. The biggest problem in understanding the development of urban infrastructure in the Indus society is the knowledge gap surrounding the settlement of Ganwarawala. Results of the surface and artifact study from Ganwarawala suggests that the site was a major urban center during the Indus cities period of 2600 to 1900 BCE. It shares similarities in material culture with the other, other urban centers of the area, such as settlement plan, types of artifacts, writing on clay tablet, tablets, and certain types of figurines. And so we do have writing from the Indus Valley civilization, but as far as I know, we have never been able to decipher it. And so there's still so much we don't know about these people, except that they had remarkable urban centers at a very early state um, in human history. Using data from Ganwarawala as a case study, my thesis is that Indus urban infrastructure is a complex phenomena with greater similarities and fewer differences. There were five major urban centers on different urban and socioeconomic scales, says Sidra Gulzer. This is an exciting study because, as noted, this, study, this site has not been explored to nearly the extent of Mahenjo-Daro and Harappa, and even then, we still don't know a lot about uh, these people. 
Gulzar, as noted, also compared the Kalistan region in the Indus civilization to settlements in the Diyala region of Mesopotamia. Comparing the data from the different settlements shows that the settlements in the Chalistan were more densely populated than in the Dayala region. The urban settlements in Chalistan were totally abandoned around 1900 BCE, while in the Diyala region, there was continuity in the settlement around 1900 BCE, says Sidra Gulzer. And so the Indus civilization had a greater expansion, but also a limited number of large urban centers. And again, interestingly, by 1900 BCE, the Chalistan area had been completely abandoned, whereas in the Diyala region, settlement continued through this period and into the future. Now, the prevailing theory for the dissolution of the Indus civilization is, well, frankly, climate change. Um, Not anthropomorphic, but still climate change. And there's also um, some evidence to suggest that there might have been a really major seismic event that changed the path of nearby rivers to a point where it was no longer sustainable to live in this area. And so these people actually ended up migrating up towards Nepal, I believe. And so I'm going to once again just stress how amazing it is that these civilizations existed so deep into the past. The Indus Valley civilization had plumbing. Uh, There were copper pipes found in the ruins of a palace from 4000 BCE. Later urban areas also were found to have earthen plumbing pipes. Elites had proto-toilets. The drainage system was simple, but was found throughout their cities. They even had community bathhouses. And so they had a lot of technological innovations at, you know, thousands of years before the common era. You know, this is 6,000 years ago that people in the Indus Valley were living in cities that had plumbing and drainage systems. That is mind-blowing, to me at least. And of course, there's still a lot that hasn't even been excavated at these sites. And so, yeah, it's very, very interesting. Okay, we do have to pause and take a break for some show promos and PSAs. And when we come back, we're going to actually stay in India for a moment, and then we'll move on. So please do stay tuned. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's Subculture Music Program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. And we are back. And as noted, we are going to stay in India. This time we're going to go to the Assam region. And this story is about four new sites in the Assam region that have been found 
to feature mysterious giant jars that may have been used in burial rituals. Talak Thakuria from Northeastern Hill University and Utam Bathari from Gauhati University collaborated with researchers at the Australian National University on a new survey of the area, which then uncovered these new sites. And they suspect that there are yet more to be found. 65 new sandstone jars were found. They are in various shapes and decorations, but some of them are quite large, uh, standing tall, and others are partially buried or fully buried. And again, these are not the first of these type to be of vessels to be found, and there's actually um, sites in other parts of Asia. And so some jars spanning almost 10 feet high and 6.5 feet wide have been found in Laos and Indonesia. We still don't know who made the giant jars or where they lived. It's all a bit of a mystery, ANU PhD student Nicholas Scopel said. And we don't technically know what they were actually used for, though obviously it's suspected that they're associated with mortuary practices. There are stories from the Naga people, the current ethnic group in northeast India, of finding the Assam jars filled with cremated remains, beads, and other material artifacts, Mr. Scopel said. Other jar sites, including those in Laos, are thought to be tied to burial rituals. Now, the initial scope of the research was actually to survey the existing sites in Assam. And so here in Assam, there were already these um, sites that had these vessels, but the more the researchers toured the area, the more sites they found. At the start, the team just went in to survey three large sites that hadn't been formally surveyed. From there, grids were set up to explore the surround surrounding densely forwarded regions, Scopel said. This is when we first started finding new jar sites. The team only searched a very limited area, so there are likely to be a lot more out there. We just don't yet know where they are. And so uh, for the team, this is important, an important enterprise because the preservation of this ancient Indian practice is really um, important because it's not tied to any cultural heritage that is extant at this point. And so it seems as though there aren't any living ethnic groups in India associated with the jars, which means that there is an importance to maintain the cultural head heritage, Scopel said. The longer we take to find them, the greater chance that they will be destroyed as more crops are planted in these areas and the forests are cut down. And so, of course, once the areas have been identified, the government and locals can work together to preserve the sites, which is very important because if you don't get locals involved, it's not going to be successful. Okay, so let's circle back to Mesopotamia. I've been waiting to talk about this. I don't know why I wanted to talk about it so much, but I just find it fascinating, and I hope you do too. So we're going to talk about the first human-bred hybrid animal, the Kunga. A team of researchers believe they've identified the first animal that humans specifically bred from two different species. So Kungas are presumed to be the offspring of a female donkey and a male Syrian wild ass. Kungas were status symbols in Mesopotamia, costing up to six times as much as donkeys. Large Kungas were used in royal dowries as draft animals to pull vehicles of the elite and 
for pulling war chariots. Smaller kungas were used in agriculture. The specific genetics of the animal had been in dispute, with many believing they were simple, simply onagers, which is a type of wild ass. To solve the mystery, a team of geneticists, archaeologists, and paleontologists teamed up to study ancient skeletons of an unknown equid buried in Syria. The last surviving genetic material of an ass species and the evolutionary history of the genus Equus, which features donkeys and horses and a bunch of other um, equines. The combination of the ancient genomes, the burial treatment, and the archaeological records suggest these hybrid animals correspond to the valuable Kungus, said study co-author Eva Marie Geigel, an expert in paleogenomics at the University of Paris. The analysis of these ancient genomes both solved a long-standing controversy and identified the earliest human-made equid hybrids, highlighting their critical role in the art of war centuries before the first domestic horses arrived in the area. So kungas would have been larger and faster than common asses, which made them better for towing vehicles and thus made it cost-effective to continue to create them. As uh, you probably know, most hybrids are sterile, and so they can't actually breed with one another. The researchers looked at 25 equid skeletons from a 4,500-year-old elite burial area, some 34 miles east of Aleppo in present-day Syria. Most of the animals seem to have been ritually sacrificed. They noticed that the skeleton's teeth were worn in a way that indicated that in life they had worn bits. Examination of the remains suggested that they were not horses, asses, or onagers, thus leading the researchers to investigate if the animals were hybrids. In order to discover the genetic makeup of the skeletons, the researchers compared genetic samples from the bones of the equids from Gobekli Tepe in Turkey. Yes, that Gobekli Tepe, uh, the favorite of all sorts of conspiracy theorists. Um, and we aren't talking about that specifically today, but good golly, is Gobekli Tepe a um, really fascinating and amazing place? Um, it is basically the um, Mesoamerican, I'm sorry, the uh, Mesopotamian uh, East Asian, um, why do I keep messing that up? I'm so sorry. The Middle Eastern, <laughs> oh goodness, uh, version of Stonehenge. And, um, and I think it's actually pretty cooler, frankly. Um, Stonehenge is pretty awesome, don't get me wrong. But Gobekli Tepe uh, has a lot more decoration and also still has a lot more mystery. We still don't quite know exactly what was going on there. Uh, the people who created it were nomads as far as we can tell. Um, and so to have the this big ritual space is really interesting and um, there's still a lot more to know about it. But uh, I would like to point out once again that that does not mean that it was built by ancient aliens. Please stop, History Channel. I'm looking at you. Um, anyways, getting back to Kungas and 
on firmer footing because I haven't read about Gobekli Tepe in a while. So if I said anything wrong, I apologize. Um, that was just off the top of my head. And so they found samples of bones from an equid at Gobekli Tepe. And they also compared that to the preserved remains of the last Syrian wild asses, which unfortunately died out in 1929. <sighs> Probably another animal to add to the list of uh, human-made extinctions, but I don't know that for certain. It just seems like that's probably what happened. And so uh, luckily, though, there are preserved remains at the National History Museum of Vienna in Austria because colonialism, um, again, question mark on that, but it just, I would just assume that the reason that the last Syrian wild asses ended up in Vienna, Austria is because someone collected them and brought them back as uh, specimens for displaying of exotic animals. And so the team used both traditional PCR and newer shotgun, uh, quote-unquote, sequencing to amplify the DNA for examination. They confirmed that the sample from Turkey and the sample from Vienna represented the same species, and also represented the paternal lineage of the samples found in Syria. The donkey represents the, mater the maternal lineage. It is surprising to see that these ancient societies envisioned something so complex as hybrid breeding. Since this was an intentional act, they had the domestic donkey, they knew they cannot domesticate the Syrian wild ass, and they did not domesticate horses, Geigel said. So they intentionally developed a strategy to breed two different species to combine different characters that they found desirable in each of the parent species. So again, uh, horses are from the um, steppes of Asia, and so they didn't necessarily, hadn't reached the Middle East by this point, and so uh, would not have been available to um people in Syria at this time. So they're still hanging out in um, the vast uh, Mongolian plains and uh, that area of um, Central and uh, Eastern Asia at that point. So knowing about this could give us more information about how these extinct animals would have looked, for instance. Uh, so we have totally uh, had to been reliant until now on pictures, but, um, you know, a lot of iconography of everything, basically, a lot of iconography, the colors are not necessarily the colors that things were. Often the colors have a very symbolic meaning. Um, so another thing I was, um, I was listening to, um, a YouTube video on uh, Cleopatra the other day. And the person was saying that, yes, Cleopatra is often uh, depicted in gold tones, but that would have been to associate her with the sun. Um, the whole idea of Cleopatra is it's very complicated. And um, I will probably uh, try to remember to link that video because it's fascinating. Um, and I'll also try and get a picture of the um, brooch and put those up on evidencebasederrata.com. I will actually do that uh, just after this. So if you're interested, you can go and look and I promise they will be there. Sometimes I do forget and I apologize for that as well. 
Okay. So, um, I just, I just think that this is such a cool story and I just didn't want to not talk about it. Um, cause it just is another one of those, like our ancient human ancestors or our ancient, um, ancestors, not like, not like Neanderthals or, well, again, we're not talking uh, Homo heidelbergensis, shall we say. We're talking, you know, fully modern humans just in ancient times. We're just like us. And I think that it's so important to remember that because I think we just always have this idea of people in the past being different and primitive. And I'm sorry, you've probably heard me say this a million times. <laughs> so uh, moving forward a bit in time, we're going to talk about medieval horses. And so a team of zooarchaeologists in the UK recently did a survey of medieval war horses to determine their size and found that they were, well, rather petite. <laughs> the researchers looked at 1,964 horse bones from the 4th through the mid-17th century from 171 different archaeological sites. So obviously by this point in time, horses had swept across Europe and the Middle East and were hanging out in England and doing all the things that we consider modern horses to do now. But of course, one of those big things that they were doing was being used uh, for knights and being used in tournaments and on the battlefield because obviously... Middle Ages has a lot of war in it. Not that any period in human history doesn't have a lot of war. Um, again, my heart goes out to the people in the Ukraine uh, who are just having to deal with the worst part of humanity. Um, but anyways, let's talk about horses because horses are not as... Uh, <laughs> horses are, are, are a much more peaceful lot as a uh, collective, at least. I'm sure there's some horses that really are um, combative, but as a general rule, horses are pretty chill. And so it turns out that most of these horses were no larger than modern ponies. The researchers knew that the bones were from adult animals because they could see the presence of fused bones, which indicates that, you know, this is an adult animal. So they're indeed just smaller than we imagined. Oliver Crichton, an archaeologist at the University of Exeter and co-author of the paper, said in a university release that, quote, the war horse is central to our understanding of medieval English society and culture as both a symbol of status closely associated with the development of arist aristocratic identity and as a weapon of war, famed for its mobility and shock value, charging the face of changing the face of battle. And so uh, during this era, there were different kinds of horses that could be considered war horses. Um, Destriers were often used in tournaments, while rounces and trotters were used for covering long distances during wartime. But unfortunately, once they've been buried and then excavated, it can be hard to determine which war horses uh, which were war horses and which were not. There's just not a lot that leaves on the skeleton to tell you uh, what the animal did in life. There has been much debate among archaeologists and historians about the issue for years. Alan Otram, an archaeologist at the University of Exeter, wrote in an email to Gizmodo, 
Whilst the texts refer to the Great Horus, they don't actually say what that means, and that has been understood largely in relation to modern equivalents that are 17 to 18 hands high. The minimum for a police horse here is 16.2 hands. Many films and museums' displays have assumed such steeds, and that is what is in the popular imagination. Yet the archaeological record hinted that the animals were generally much smaller, Outram added. Indeed, none in the almost 2,000 we studied could be able to be modern police horses. It is likely that destriers were still relatively larger than normal horses, thus relatively great, but quite smaller by modern standards. Now, uh, if you don't know horses, hands refers to how many hands, basically a hand's breath, a human hand's breath, um, high an animal is at their withers, which is where the neck meets the shoulder. And so horses of 16 hands didn't really occur until the 13th century, and it would take another 100 years for the development of my personal favorite horse, draft horses. Uh, draft horses, I always think, are just inherently better because they're big and sturdy, and um, I feel an affinity with them. <laughs> and so, you know, in basically all modern media, uh, shire horses are often used, but they stand at 18 hands high and they're pretty big. They're, they're, you know, sturdy boys. And so it would have actually been rare to have a horse that reached even 15 hands high uh, during this period, even during the period uh, where there was a royal stud network. So even when they had kind of the best of the best being bred, they were still smaller. Uh, smaller horses were the size of donkeys, while average horses were slightly smaller than mules from Roman times to the post-medieval era. Now, the next steps are to study the ancient DNA of horse remains, looking at morphological changes in the animal's bones, which are adapted to the type of work they're doing. So they're hoping to kind of figure out uh, by looking at the DNA and looking at the morphological changes to see how people were shaping them to do different work. And so the team also note that this genetic research could help archaeologists understand how breeds of horses were developed over the centuries. So that is pretty neat. And uh, horses are awesome. And yeah, <laughs> even if they are small, um, they are still pretty awesome. And so finally tonight, let's talk about the Mayan calendar. The Mayan calendar is actually still in use today uh, by many Maya communities, which I think is fantastic. Archaeologists in northern Guatemala have found a broken piece of plaster that featured a bar and dot symbol representative of the number seven drawn above a deer head representing, well, seven deer, which is a date in the Mayan calendar system based on a 260-day uh, rotation. And so the remains are 2,300 years old and are now considered the oldest known use of the calendar, which was actually used not just by the Maya, but by many cultures across the region, including the Maya and the Aztecs. Its persistence in many communities up to the present day stands as a testament of its importance in religious and social life. 
wrote University of Texas archaeologist David Stewart and his colleagues in their recent paper about the glyph. Our ability to trace its early use back some 23 centuries stands as another testament to its historical and cultural significance. And so uh, the Maya calendar was pretty interesting. The calendar used the numbers 1 through 13, and then there were 20 words. And so those words would uh, be for animals, plants, or concepts. And so the calendar was organized with each word being set in a specific order, uh, basically like days of the week. So Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, always go in the same order. And so then uh, part of the Mayan calendar would be rabbit, water, dog, monkey, grass. And so those would be equivalent to days of the week. When the days hit 13, they would come around back to one. So deer 13 would be followed by one rabbit, two dog, three monkey, etc. Now the system had 260 combinations of day names using this system, but that didn't mean that the Maya calendar wasn't a 365-day calendar. It actually was. And so the first day of the year could fall on any day that contained, quote, a year bearer in the name. And so that day would then be considered the beginning of the year. So think about the fact that New Year's progresses through the days of the week. So it's not always on a Friday. It's Friday and then it's Saturday some years, Sunday some years, et cetera, et cetera. Deer is a year bearer name on the Maya calendar. So technically, seven deer could have been a New Year's Day. It could also have been marking a specific event or even the name of a person or deity. So um, if you've seen documentaries on the Maya, things like that, some of their um, royalty was actually named things like seven deer. Um, And so you could have a lot of different meanings for it. But we know that it's still based on the calendar. And so part of the issue with sort of figuring out more of what's going on here is that the fragment is frankly small and it's written in an archaic form of Maya that is not as well deciphered as classical Maya and actually looks quite differently. There are three symbols on the fragment, the seven deer, an undeciphered symbol, and a third, which may be either another calendar glyph or part of an image that just the archaeologists can't suss out yet. But the seven deer is clear and shows that this fragment came either from a calendar or a notation of a date showing that this calendar was in use 2,300 years ago. This pushes it back some hundred years from the next oldest sample. Archaeologists have found other examples that may be older, but they're still uncertain of their uh, meaning because of this archaic uh, script is not as well known and can be questionably datable. The fragment was found at Las Pinturas Pyramid in San Bartolo in northern Guatemala, and it was actually found among rubble from an early phase of construction there. The fragment was dated with nearby charcoal fragments. It's among 248 fragments of painted lime plaster found at the site, which was used as infill for the pyramid that was built in the 200s BCE. Eleven have been found to have fragments of script, some of the oldest found so far, and represent, again, a poorly understood archaic version of the Maya script. 
These fragments come from murals, which would have once adorned the walls of a temple complex with a temple, a tiered platform, and a ball court, as well as molded plaster masks that would have once adorned a pyramid painted in shades of red, pink, yellow, and black. But in the 200s BCE, the Mayas tore down that complex and used the rubble for a new pyramid. And in fact, the original compound was also built over the remains of an even older site. This was again a common practice in Maya and again in Aztec uh, communities where they would destroy old pyramids and use the same area uh, and the rubble to build new larger complexes and pyramids. Another cool thing was that they could actually tell that there were different uh, handwriting. And so there were different handwriting styles. So there must have been different scribes who were creating this work. And so, yeah, super cool and amazing. And that's all the time we have for tonight. Uh, Thank you for listening. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.